0: Monday, March 12th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, and from Motley Fool Options, Jim Gillies. Gentlemen, good to see you. Jim, thanks for making the trip, man. Always. Always good to have you in studio. We are going to dip into the Fool mailbag on today's podcast. You can always drop us an email, radio at Fool.com. That's radio at Fool.com. Ask us questions, weigh in on anything we talked about. If you listen to Motley Fool Money over the weekend, you know that we ask folks to drop us an email with their best bachelor or bachelorette party stories because, Joe, you had your bachelor party this weekend and you're, you're looking good for a guy who was out partying big this weekend. I'm present. <laughs> <laughs> President accounted for. All right, some recent emails we got. Uh, let's start with one from Troy Adamson in Vancouver, British Columbia. He writes I listen to market foolery every day on my iPod as I drive. I also read the Globe and Mail's investor website that covers 50% Canadian stocks and 50% American stocks. I wish Market Foolery had a Canadian edition so I could learn more about Canadian companies. I invest in mostly Canadian blue chips to take advantage of the Canadian dividend tax credit. Just wondering if you guys have any, any favorite Canadian companies. That's why we brought in Gillies. Uh, here I am. That's why we <laughs> flew Gillies here across the border. I'll um, uh, we'll get to Joe in a second, but Jim, I'll I'll just turn to you. Uh,
1: favorite Canadian companies? I have uh, several favorite Canadian companies. They are already mostly in his uh, in his wheelhouse. I think he's talking about dividend and dividend tax credit. We do have a uh, you get a nice deal for buying uh, dividend paying Canadian companies. So. Personally, I like the uh, the big Canadian banks mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons, uh, not the least of which is they, so far at least, managed to sidestep a lot of the issues that plague the American banks. I think we've talked about that a little bit before. Is this like Scotia Bank? Is that one of them? Scotia the big- Bank, CIBC, uh, Royal Bank, um, TD, Toronto Dominion, yep. and um, Bank of Montreal. Um, all of them, uh, the big five, big six, if you include National Bank, they all pay uh, good dividends, rising dividends. So somewhere James Early is smiling. Um, <laughs> You know, and they – I mean, it's – they they have I, – I say so far because there's there is a lot of talk uh, that uh, Canadian real estate is starting to overheat a little bit. Uh, again, it's not to the extent yet, at least so far, that uh, uh, that you guys experienced a number of years ago. People are just
2: clamoring to be in a barren, frozen land. <laughs> well, you know,
1: you, you go out to Vancouver and, or, or the condo market in Toronto is getting uh, pretty um, vigorous, shall we say. I've heard that. And uh, so you kind of go, eh, you know, but um, – yeah, uh, and, and there's there's some structural issues too. You know, Canadian mortgages aren't tax deductible, so we don't uh, we don't get that type of um, high end thing. But there's still there's some, there's some competition some amongst the Canadian banks right now of of trying to how low can we offer you mortgage rates, which of course will will never you know and and we'll, we'll the rates will go up later, and that that doesn't end well I hear. Um, but uh, as far as Canadian companies, I like I like the big dividend payers uh, B C E, uh, Fats uh, with Bell Canada Enterprises. Fat growing dividends. Um, Rogers Communications. uh, I can't stand the company, but I send them like almost three hundred bucks a month. Are they like a cable company? They are like a cable company. They're your internet, your cable, your cell phone. The Canadian Comcast. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah. You hate them, but you send them money. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, uh, and then there's there's a a few little small caps or what have you that you can play with. But uh, uh, I, I. I like what this guy's already doing, frankly. So, Jim, Hi.
2: just to follow on Hi. with that, how do you think most, or what's the best way for most American investors to invest in Canadian stocks?
1: Uh, I would probably look at uh, the S&P TSX 60, which is kind of our uh, the large cap um, side of our composite index. It's the 60 largest, uh, uh, best capitalized companies, if you will, in the Toronto composite stock exchange. And uh, you can buy ETF products on those and i would probably look at that just as a as a broad thing like that. um I, I, we're very commodity based obviously. we got a lot of oil and gas, a lot of gold and and what have you and that uh that tends to scare me a little bit because i have no expertise in predicting which way prices are going to move and no one else does either. and so you can get haircut uh a nice company uh, I think you've had some experience with Cameco, so
0: yeah. So, uh, Joe, what about you? Uh, are, are, are any Canadian companies, or m- even just U.S. companies, that do a heck of a lot of business up in Canada? Yeah,
2: well, I think Potash Corp is one that's really interesting right now, which I'm sure our Canadian friends are very familiar with. That's a min- is that a mineral company? It's basically the Saudi Aramco of potash. Uh, it's part of our cartel, just like OPEC, <laughs> okay. only for potash. And like the Saudis, Saskatchewan they great, we represent. Yeah, they have they have great <laughs> low cost reserves that have a long life ahead of them, and the stock's been drilled on weak uh, weak demand. Pricing's been soft, and what you're seeing is they're pulling some supply production offline. Ultimately, that should result in stronger prices, and I think the stock's got some potential upside on that. So, looks interesting.
0: Uh, I'm I'm surprised, Jim, you didn't mention Tim Hortons at all.
1: Well, we could talk Tim Hortons <laughs> if you'd like. Um, I I am I'm a i am have a love hate relationship with Tim Hortons. I, I actually don't like their coffee, uh, but I think that uh, somewhere it's con- it's uh, constitutionally mandated that every Canadian a Tim Hortons six times a day. Uh, so there's a certain amount of uh, brand stickiness there. Uh, they 're a nice little dividend player they 've been they 've been going really well they've they 've had trouble uh, breaking into the u s um, they 've been they 've been at it for a while and and i mean they're they 're making some progress mm-hmm. uh, uh, unfortunately um uh, what they 've been doing is they 've been coming you know taking the obvious path of just crossing over the border into like kind of the perimeter states where there 's already some knowledge of the brand so we 're talking New York and Massachusetts and that maine. sort of thing and maine and you know i I hear there 's another coffee company in Massachusetts or New England has a pretty big presence. So they're going right up against Dunkin' Donuts. And, you know, so, I mean, they're making progress. Uh, they've got, I think, five or probably about six or 700 U.S. openings now. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit
0: of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, obviously, there there is that coffee culture uh, in New England and New York with, with Dunkin' Donuts. On the other hand, is it always a, a wise strategy to compete with someone on what is essentially their home home turf like it would almost make more sense for Tim Hortons too, if they're going to expand into the U.S. to look to do it maybe in the in the western part where a company like Dunkin' Donuts really doesn't have the footprint than it does in New England.
1: And I, I think they have some uh, in 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 the um, the Washington state kind of that area of coming down from Vancouver. But then of course you're walking into Starbucks backyards. So. Yeah,
2: I've heard of that startup coffee company <laughs> out west that's getting some traction.
0: <laughs> Email from Tom Metzger, uh, a recent listener asked about diversification. As he was starting to build a portfolio, I'm wondering what your thoughts were on balancing individual stock purchases with the largest holdings in the mutual funds you own. For example, Apple is a significant holding in some mutual funds. If I own such a fund, diversification would suggest that I look at other stocks since I already own Apple. You guys have talked about Vanguard before, and I was just hoping you might be able to comment a little more about mutual funds in the context of a diversified portfolio, where someone also buys individual stocks? Uh, and It's a great question because we do focus on stocks. That's what we do here at The Motley Fool. But the reality is, for a lot of people, um, they are investing in mutual funds, either through their 401k or or maybe like a a thrift savings program if you're a government employee, that sort of thing. I mean, that is where much of stock ownership in the United States comes from, through mutual funds. Um, Joe, I'll just start with you. Um, How do you think about diversification? Weighing stocks against mutual funds.
2: Yeah, well, it's great that he's looking at this on a look-through basis because you do need to think about what's actually within the funds that you own and how that impacts it. You know, Apple's about four percent of the S and P five hundred. So, if you have eighty percent of your money in the S and P five hundred, I probably wouldn't take a bunch of the rest of that and put it into Apple. Uh, that said. You know you should overweight your favorite ideas now you should have more than one of them and spread those bets, but there's nothing wrong with uh, putting a little something extra behind something you believe in, but on a look through basis you know I, I don't think individual investors should typically have more than like five percent in a single position i mean it 's fairly aggressive so Jim, what do you think
1: i I actually like the uh the look through approach as well. Um, mainly because i like to look at it uh, avoiding problems and, and just to harken back to the canadian issue for for a quick minute uh the canadian listener i'm sure has heard of nortel and and the problems that nortel which at one point in time was the largest company in canada and it's now bankrupt it it was at one point in time it was 35% of the index and so people had all their all their and, and every every equity fund owned it yeah. of course and so people were were having that they, they would have their index funds and they would have their mutual funds and then they were buying Nortel on the side because there was 35 buy ratings on the street, and everyone thought it was going to the moon. Um, so yeah, I, I I tend to look at the mutual fund question and say, okay, well, you know, what is what is my mutual fund going to own? Uh, is it an ETF or is it a, a fund that is tracking the S and P or is it an actively managed fund? Um, you know, because that the actively managed fund, the Apple could be gone tomorrow if the fund manager decides it's gone. Um, you know, I I tend to think that people are almost over. If you've got 80% of your money in in funds and you're playing with 20% of your money. Diversification is not a problem for you? I, I think you're probably already adequately diversified. I mean, Apple is probably not going to zero in the near future, so... That's what they said about Nortel, isn't it? Well, you know, (laughs) let's put it this way. I think the guys running Apple are significantly smarter than the guys running Nortel were. Um, Joe, just one more thing on mutual funds. We talk all the time about company
0: management, the CEO, um, who who are the executives leading an individual company. Um, To to what extent uh, people who are looking at mutual funds, to what extent should they be looking at the fund managers and really um, kicking the tires of those people as opposed to what's actually in the fund?
2: Oh well, that's huge. I mean, the person, especially with an actively managed fund, where you've got a manager and a team of people picking stocks, like you're essentially investing in that person. You're not buying the underlying stocks because the stocks are going to change, just like Jim was saying. So you want to be looking at this person's long-term track record. How long have they been running the fund? uh, What have their returns been like against both their you know broader index like the S and P? But also against their rivals within their space. So if it's small cap value, you want to compare them against other small cap value funds.
0: Email from Mike in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He writes I recently had interesting and less than stellar interactions with both ValueLine Line and Comcast. I persisted using their services because of their somewhat monopoly status, though Value Line much less than Comcast. I thought you might be able to talk about some other companies that are less well known but still hold somewhat. Of a monopoly in their respective industries. Uh, great question, because let's face it—just selfishly as an investor, I'd love to be able to invest in monopolies. I mean, or, or I guess I should say legal monopolies, because we, you know, we talk about companies that have strong moats around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what uh, a legal monopoly has. Jim, to Mike's question in terms of monopolies that might be a little under the radar. What do you think?
1: Well, I think I've already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, I'll say Rogers Communications again, which is, uh, I guess, as Joe calls it, the uh, the Canadian Comcast. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I swear heavily every month when I mail my uh, or I guess now o- electronically send my three hundred dollars for all the services I buy from them. Uh, Tim Hortons. It, it, it all joking aside, it is hard to overstate how well Tim Hortons does in Canada. I mean it it is they are everywhere and they seem to uh the, the the city where I live it's not a large city we're we're 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Uh population of about 120 130,000 people depending on whether the university's in session or not. And you know, I think we have three or four McDonald's in town and we have one or two um we have two Starbucks, we have one or two uh uh Burger Kings and and so on and so forth. We have a Buffalo Wild Wings. We have 23 Tim Hortons. Wow. Okay. And and they're all full. And you drive by if they're a drive-through. You drive by, and there'll be like twenty-five cars in the drive-through. It, it is, it is, uh, it's a wildly successful story. And people are passionate about Tim's. And like you just have to do like kind of a fake Scottish burr and go, <laughs> and people understand that that's the roll-up the rim to win contest, which was just in March. I mean, it's 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 a national thing. It's it's. And it's bizarre, and I can't stand the coffee. A, that's
0: a Tim Hortons contest.
1: It's every every year in March, like you know, and 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 as if you're if you're someone of an environmental bent, where you kind of you know, you hate you know seeing like you know coffee cups thrown on the side of the road or whatever like that. So you use like a travel mug. Every March, you start seeing these coffee cups. Just they're everywhere because people start stop using the travel mugs and start getting these cups because there's little prizes perhaps under the rim. Uh. So you roll up the rim, see if you win or not. It's like. You know, I've, I've actually seen people go into a Tim Hortons with their travel mug. They'll get their travel mug filled up because they're doing their part for the environment. And then they'll say, give me a cup. And they'll say, give me a cup. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we don't care about the environment here. It's, yeah, it's it's not, not, you know, it's really what's the issue,
1: environment but... ever done for me, you know?
0: Uh, Joe
2: Mager, uh, under the radar monopolies? Yeah, well, there are some kind of obvious ones out there, um, you know, like a Comcast being one. But then there are legal regulated monopolies like a Southern Company or a California Water I think the most interesting ones are tough to find. I mean, it's obviously you're not going to achieve a monopoly without uh, some sort of luck or odd story. An interesting one, I think, is Verisk Analytics. Uh, Verisk is this company that provides property and casualty insurance data to the biggest uh, PNCs in the country. All 100 of the biggest insurers use them. And the backstory is that it was actually formed decades ago as a co-op between the biggest companies to improve their data. And help them price insurance and risk a lot more efficiently. Well, during the financial crisis, they were all strapped for cash, so they ended up taking it public. And so now this company Verisk is out there, and its ticker's VRSK, uh, phenomenally profitable. And all their customers are completely locked in. There's essentially no competition for their primary service offering. Uh, it's great little. That's business. amazing. Yeah, they provide data
0: to insurance companies and the 100 biggest insurance companies are their customers?
2: Yeah, it's really, really <laughs> impressive. I, I do wish they're using a lot of that cash to kind of branch out a little bit. The nice thing is, because their clients are so hooked in, that they can cross-sell them well, and I think they'll do that very successfully over the next few years. At the same time, they're kind of branching out into a few other uh, areas of data, like healthcare, that I'm not sure that they have... Well, I'm not. I'm sure that they don't have the same advantages they do in insurance. Um, so you're probably going to see... You know, margins maybe suffer a little bit, but still a great, phenomenally profitable business.
0: You know what they should do? Invest in a little startup coffee business in the uh, up in Canada and just take on Tim Hortons. Boom. <laughs> uh, speaking of monopolies, uh, today is the 100th anniversary of the Girl Scouts and the Girl Scout cookies. I mean they they just they've just got that monopoly. They've got that monopoly on sort of door to door cookie sales and also on the Thin Mints, which uh, it, they were saying on CNBC this morning. Shocker! It's the most popular cookie of all time for the Girl Scouts, uh, and I, I may have I may have ranted about this uh, once or twice before. But we talk about innovation and companies needing to innovate. If there is anyone connected to the Girl Scouts listening, stop innovating. Stop. Stop. <laughs> ro- stop rolling out because every year there's a new cookie. Every year there's like, oh, we have the Thin Mints, we have the Samoas, the Tagalongs. Oh, and then we've got this new low fat. Um, uh, pine tree bark cookie, and it's like, no, we just want the thin mints. Just give us. the, I mean, just. Uh, am I wrong?
2: I mean, is there? Do you have a favorite Girl Scout cookie, or is it? I am a strong fan of the Tagamong. Okay. I Love tagalongs, and I know it's one of the smaller sellers, but they are so delicious. I can't buy them because I'll just burn. I'll burn through a box in a day. Jim, what about you? Uh,
1: I am thoroughly a thin mint fan. In fact, I've actually turned away Girl Scouts who have tried. Flogging their other cookies at my door <laughs> saying, No, you come back when the thin mints are in season. All right, drop us an
0: email, radio at full.com. Weigh in on the Girl Scout cookies. And by all means, ask us a question uh, for a future mailbag segment. Jim Gillies, Joe Mager, gentlemen, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you tomorrow.